You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at uh, RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 159 by Rudolf Steiner, 15 lectures entitled The Mystery of Death, and translated by Simon Blacksland DeLange. This is Lecture 3, given in Bremen on the 21st of February, 1915, entitled Spiritual Science and the Riddles of Death, Deeper Connections of European History. In our times, what is referred to in spiritual science as the riddles of death come to our attention in a particularly meaningful way. Everything has either a close or distant connection with them. We receive, above all from spiritual science, not only the fundamental conviction but the basic knowledge about the world in the physical body and about the world that we enter through the portal of death. But this latter world actually also always livingly surrounds us in our sensory existence, although it is not discernible to someone who is strongly attached to the life of the senses, because he is insufficiently attentive to it. When such dramatic events as now surround us are pervading the age that demands such a multitude of sacrifices from human beings, we must engage with them with our whole soul. It is in this respect clearly apparent that there are many things which can be illumined from the standpoint of spiritual science. We wish to direct our attention to realms of life where it is evident that humanity has, through a materialistic way of thinking, arrived at a disastrous degree of illogicality with respect to what is going on around it. We hear, for example, the various nations reproaching one another in the manner that is familiar today. I did not want the war. It was you who started it. The question is in itself justified, and it can already now be stated, for the facts speak for themselves, where the outward causes lie. But someone viewing this from the perspective of spiritual science will see it differently. With regard to this question, it must be clear that the war is actually a final phase, or at any rate a later phase, in the course of the events that came before. One also commits an error of judgment in the case of processes of illness, where one often continues to speak of such processes when there are processes of health which need to occur in order to bring healing. The outward processes that ensue in order to paralyze the illness, in order to bring healing, and which have previously taken place, are not noticed. The war also represents an apparent process of illness. It is an endeavor on the part of mankind to reach beyond certain events which preceded it. The sickness resides in the unhealthy relationships of nations with one another. When one investigates outward causes with one's reasoning powers, one overlooks the inner causes. Where we are as though herded together as in a fortress and surrounded by a ring, there is good cause to raise the question as to the inner reasons or the nature of the soul reason that this encirclement was brought about. People speak of an encirclement in relation to recent years, to the last few decades. But 
When one considers the wider context, one sees that it begins much, much earlier. It may sound strange, but one can identify the year 860, not 1860, but 860. The process that now comes to expression in a manner that one can designate as the most terrible war that humanity has faced since its time on earth began has lasted as long as this. In the deeper context of European history, one finds the highly remarkable thing that in Central Europe something of the nature of spiritual substance was pressed together. And if one investigates these deeper connections, one sees that this was with a particular object in view. It does not have to do with the outer determining factors of blood, of race, but with the fact that something of the nature of a spiritual substance pervades the world. Something draws together in Central Europe as in a snake-like ring that comes down from the extreme north. Two streams from the east and west reach in the form of a ring toward the south and come together again in a similar pattern. In the ninth century, the Norsemen, who are related by blood with so much, move down from a center which later comes to be in Central Europe but they invade the Roman element, which derives from southern Europe. They intermingle with it. In 1860, they stand before Paris, and the Vikings are overpowered by the Romans. The western territory of France owes its origin to this. The Vikings, as Normans, brought more to England from France than the Angles and Saxons were able to bring to the British Isles. In the east, the Vikings migrated further. They forced their way down from the north toward the Volga and the Black Sea into Slavic territory. Later, the Tartar stream invades. The Slavic element racially overwhelms the Vikings and brings them the Christian religion in its eastern form. They become Slavicized as Ros. This is what they are called in Finland, nothing of which remains other than the name Russia. This name is of Germanic origin. The name Rurik has the same origin. People have very dubious views about these connections. In the west of Europe, many speak of how the French are called to re-enliven the old Celtic world in a kind of renaissance. There is the idea that in Central Europe there are predominantly Germans, whereas the west is the cradle of Celtic culture. But the truth is the reverse of this in that in the French there is far more German blood and in Central Europe more Celtic blood. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of the West are completely overwhelmed by Romanism. In the East, the Viking element, and hence the Germanic heritage, are overpowered by a foreign racial element, and a religion that is completely alien to the Russian folk soul continues to hold sway there. Thus people in Central Europe are confined within these encircling arcs. The Romans reach as far as Constantinople, as do the Slavicized Norsemen, so we have the form of a snake or ring. When we consider what was spiritually pressed together then, we have the impression that it has a particularly important task. Yesterday I gave an indication of something of which I have spoken elsewhere, that a certain intimate association of the folk soul with the individual soul was to take place here, and fruits of the fairest kind were to be brought forth within the best of those involved. 
The ego is to be directly embraced, not the particular soul members as in the West. The ego was to be directly enlivened. It arises from this, as must already be clear from viewing these things exoterically, that in Central Europe there could never be total hostility toward idealism, that to an intense degree there was always a certain inclination toward the spiritual world. When we began our spiritual movement, karma disposed that we had initially to work in conjunction with the British movement, but outwardly everything further was only a symptom of what had to occur with a certain necessity. When we consider what the theosophical movement from which we had to separate ourselves actually is, it will be apparent that cultural life has fallen there into two parts. Outer life takes a purely materialistic course, and the spiritual element is added on to it. They always go their separate ways. Contrast with this what our spiritual life must be for us. Just as in the organism the head cannot be thought of without the body, so does our spiritual life grow out of the overall cultural life. One needs only to begin with Tauler, Eckhart, Angelus Silesius, and then proceed to Herder and Lessing. Everywhere we must develop from this what shall become a higher spiritual culture. We cannot simply attach our spiritual outlook to what we find. We must conceive of it as an organism and raise it to such a status. We must inwardly make the discovery that Christ's second coming is a spiritual affair. Hence we cannot make even the smallest concession. We can only approach Christ as a figure with the eye, E-Y-E, of spirit, with an inner experience. In the West he is forced into a materialized mold, made into something dogmatic. People could not but imagine that he would come in the physical body. Hence the grotesque idea of putting Christ publicly on display in the body. This happened in connection with what was circumscribed at that time. Thus this question must touch us quite objectively. How must Central European culture relate to the culture of the future? Truth is something universal, but how it arises is a different matter. In Central European culture lie the sources for the whole spiritual culture of the future. We must find the path from German idealism to a spiritual culture. To this end, it is necessary that here in this central region, a culture of the ego is established. On the occult plane, this can easily be seen. The human ego must be enkindled by the outer world since it first awakens and becomes inwardly conscious. Thus the ego culture of Central Europe is inspired from without. One needs only to observe recent events, the unification of the German nature. It is characteristic that the German Reich was founded in 1871 on foreign soil. So many things could be said that show also, in outer events, that a culture of the ego holds sway in Central Europe. It seems appropriate to ask, what significance do sacrificial deaths have for the spiritual world? Countless human beings are passing through the portal of death in the flower of their youth. First, the connection between ego, astral body, and etheric body separates from the physical body. The physical body is seemingly 
given over to the earth, the etheric body to the etheric world. Astral body and ego go further on their way. But it must surely occur to us that the relationship that a person has to his etheric body when he passes at a normal age through the gate of death is different from that of those young people who are doing so now. One understands this at the level of the physical body, and one now comes to understand it for the etheric body. It would still have supported the physical body for decades and been able to work upon it. It goes through the gate of death with these unused forces, is united with the folk soul, and the work of the folk soul will in future be impregnated with the unused forces of these etheric bodies. It is up to us to have an understanding of this. There will be people who will know that the folk soul is an active element. Only if one knows that unspent forces of etheric bodies will work as a spiritual power in a quite specific way in the spiritual world, can one understand what actually goes on. The awareness of this connection with the spiritual world becomes important. Through the engendering of such an awareness of the spiritual world, spiritual science will increasingly become something living in people's hearts and minds and not remain a mere teaching. A person knows that he is in a spiritual aura, just as he knows here that the air is all around him. Just as he distinguishes here between fresh and stale air, so will be aware of good and evil spirits in experiencing the spiritual aura. This is indeed the right fruit of spiritual science. We see it when we observe events affecting us that we may find instructive. One such event occurred where our building is located. This concerned a child, the forces of whose etheric body were unspent. For someone to see who knows how to see, the forces have passed into the aura of our Dornach building and live there. This is something for which I can vouch. The etheric body, which as regards its forces, belongs more to the commonality, continues to exert a rightful influence. Since then it has tried to do something through inspirations in the vicinity of the building. These are helping forces. Such things come to our attention. We can let ourselves be instructed by them as to how mysterious the connections are in the spiritual world. In recent times we have had the experience in the karma of our society that dear friends have through death been taken from us away from the physical plane. What I said in the Vienna cycle about the life between death and a new birth was made very clear to many by these souls. One of these souls has found the way into our movement when the physical body was already worn out. This was a being who, since belonging to our movement, manifested herself to me in her soul nature through a body that had become translucent. After death, the image of the soul that I had formerly known was interwoven with the way that it presented itself afterward. The following words made themselves audible approximately three days after death had occurred. You appeared among us, The moving gentleness of your being spoke out of the quiet power of your eyes. An enlivening peace flowed in the waves with which your gaze conveyed the weaving of your inner being to all things and to other people. And this being was ensouled by your voice, which eloquently 
more through the manner of speaking than the words themselves, revealed what lay hidden within your beautiful soul. Yet wordlessly they fully revealed the devoted love to those attentive to it. This being who from a quiet, noble beauty proclaimed to the receptive a feeling of world-soul creativity. Close quote. After death there is a dimming of consciousness because it is being flooded with activity. This happens through the review that is the first thing that occurs after death, not in a case of suicide, as a kind of solar point. It is one of the most beautiful and highest of experiences. One begins by saying, this has been your life, and through this one orients oneself in the spiritual world. Our friend had emerged from the stage of the etheric review so that one spoke to the being who was indeed present but not conscious. Then, through the heat, came a moment of consciousness and she saw the cremation. Time becomes space. There is a correspondence between what takes place in the physical and in the spiritual world. In such a case, a call does not resound from the spiritual world like an echo, but is transformed into a comprehensible answer from the not-as-yet conscious soul through such examples of the feeling that can be discerned in us, in the knowledge of the spiritual world apprehended by our feelings, the result must be that we experience the reality of the spiritual world. It is particularly important to acquire this definite feeling in our time in order that healing for the whole of humanity, in both its physical and soul aspects, may grow out of the grave nature of the present. For great events of world significance have always also been, for a superficial spiritual knowledge, the clear expression that in the world of the senses we have not only sense-perceptible things, but that spiritual beings are involved with them. It is difficult to break through the veil that separates the physical from the spiritual world. This makes self-knowledge difficult in the broadest sense. People often take too facile a view of it, Even in an outward physical sense, it is sometimes difficult. The notable philosopher, Professor Ernst Mach, not Ferdinand Mach, I would not otherwise have spoken of a notable philosopher, has given a grotesque example of this. In one of his works, Mach says that when he was a young man, an unpleasant, somewhat repugnant face had once appeared to him, reflected in a shop window which to his consternation he was obliged to recognize as his own. He experienced something similar again on a subsequent occasion. On boarding a bus he saw a man with an ugly face approaching him from the other direction and belatedly recognized that he had seen himself in the mirror. People have a great deal of unclarity about the nature, the form of the soul, and all that one has to go through in order to come to self-knowledge is something that they can scarcely dream of. To a considerable degree, maya is a present reality in the depths of the soul. A person has the drive toward cruelty. He lives with people whom from time to time he torments, and so on. He searches for an outward cause for this. He often invents brilliant reasons for casting a veil over the whole fabric of the soul. I myself knew someone who always spoke of how he had accomplished what he had through great sacrifices, but I had to say that it was only an inner sensuality that satisfied him. When he spoke of sacrifices, 
egotism alone stood behind everything. True self-knowledge can be attained only if one gradually advances in spiritual knowledge, insofar as one experiences through oneself what is in the world. There are in the world people who love to organize opportunities for gossiping. This even occurs among men gathering for their evening drink. When they are asked why they gossip, people have all kinds of important reasons for it. But if we run our fingers through all the finery, we have a feeling of pleasure. When one gossips, the etheric body constantly comes in contact with the air that is set in motion. It is thereby stroked. There is nothing baneful in this. One only understands what happens when people gossip if one knows that man has an etheric body. Humanity is approaching a time when it must increasingly look such things in the face. It will then occur that the people who maintain today in their materialistic outlook that everything spiritual is sheer fantasy will look as they would if someone wanted to say that where the air is, there is nothing but empty space. Just as one discovers that the air is real, so will humanity discover that the spirit is a reality. When one considers the greatest of all mysteries, the mystery of Golgotha, one can believe that Christ had mainly influenced mankind through a teaching once he had passed through the mystery of Golgotha. But what people have known about Christ is the very smallest part. Theologians have squabbled with one another, but the least of them have understood something right. Only a part of what happens in history forms part of one's conscious understanding. One example of this is the battle between Maxentius and Constantine at Milvian Bridge on 28 October 312, which was decided not through outward circumstances of whatever kind, but through influences of a non-physical nature. With an army that was far stronger than that of his opponent, Constantine, Maxentius had Rome to defend. On consulting the books of the Sibyls, it was indicated to him that he should lead his troops out of Rome. In this way he would destroy Rome's enemies. He was further confirmed in this by a dream. Constantine also had a dream. He was charged with having his soldiers preceded by a banner with Christ's monogram instead of the old standard. Thus it happened, and the armies of Maxentius, which in defiance of all reason was led out of Rome, was defeated by Constantine's weaker military forces, and Maxentius himself met his death in his flight. The Christ impulse had here worked right into the subconscious of human beings. The impulse lives in the subconscious in the same way that while ships are voyaging on the sea, what really matters is enacted in submarines. In the 15th century, there was another important moment. At that time, the Maid of Orleans entered into the course of history in such a way that everything that happened subsequently was determined by this. The whole map of Europe, and also its cultural life, would have been different if the English had been victorious. The Maid of Orleans was a servant of Michael. Schiller was deeply moved by the figure of the Maid of Orleans. Quote, the world loves to besmirch what is radiant, close quote. Whereas Voltaire spat poison and gall at her, Shakespeare himself could not understand her, Anatole Francais dragged her into the morass of materialism, and all Western cultural figures failed to understand her. 
Schiller embodied this noble figure in his drama. In order that the Maid of Orleans could fulfill her historical mission, it was necessary that she underwent a kind of unconscious initiation. This was an initiation of the kind that is described in the legend of Olaf Astesen. Such initiations, for which certain karmic preconditions had to be present, could take place in the time of the thirteen nights between 25 December and 6 January, when the outer light has the least strength and inner enlightenment is most possible. Thus Olaf Astesen had real spiritual experiences in the state of sleep during the thirteen nights, which he then related before the church door, as it says in the dream song. The Maid of Orleans also, in a certain sense, spent the thirteen nights in a state of sleep, namely, in the body of her mother. In the last period before birth, a person is especially accessible to unconscious influences from the spiritual world. The Maid of Orleans was born on 6 January. On this day, all the inhabitants of her place of birth came together, because something quite extraordinary could be felt in the aura of the village. It was the birth of the Maid of Orleans, in whom the Christ impulse had been implanted immediately before she perceived the physical light of the sun. The true goal of all our endeavors, and what really matters to us, is to discover the living aspect of the connection between the physical and spiritual worlds. It will come to be recognized that the twilight period of this war signifies a turning point of time. Human beings shall know that the souls of those who have sacrificed themselves work further and that this war has the task of bringing the age of materialism to an end. It is necessary that there are souls who send thoughts up into the spiritual world like outstretched hands and bring down the consciousness from the spiritual world souls with a spiritual consciousness. The more such spirit-conscious souls send forth their thoughts, and much is dependent upon our spiritual atmosphere, being pervaded by such thoughts, the more will the fruits deriving from sacrificial deaths be able to ripen. Thus we may summarize our considerations today in these words, quote, From the courage of the fighters, from the blood on fields of battle, from the grief of the bereaved, from the people's sacrifice, there will ripen fruit of spirit if souls will turn in consciousness toward the realm of spirit. Close quote. The end of Lecture 3